Hi, I'm Henry Bear. And I'm Tyler Johnson. And you're listening to The Doctor's Art, a podcast that explores meaning in medicine. Throughout our medical training and career, we have pondered, what makes medicine meaningful? Can a stronger understanding of this meaning create better doctors? How can we build healthcare institutions that nurture the doctor-patient connection? What can we learn about the human condition from accompanying our patients in times of suffering? In seeking answers to these questions, we meet with deep thinkers working across healthcare, from doctors and nurses to patients and healthcare executives, those who have collected a career's worth of hard-earned wisdom. Probing the moral heart that beats at the core of medicine, we will hear stories that are by turns heartbreaking, amusing, inspiring, challenging, and enlightening. We welcome anyone curious about why doctors do what they do. Join us as we think out loud about what illness and healing can teach us about some of life's biggest questions. When it comes to international humanitarianism in the form of medical aid, there is perhaps no bigger name than Médecins Sans Frontières, commonly referred to by its acronym MSF. Known as Doctors Without Borders in English, MSF is renowned for its work in regions affected by armed conflict, endemic diseases, and natural disasters. In this episode, we are honored to be joined by Dr. Christos Christo, a Greek surgeon who is the international president of MSF. As a field doctor, he has worked in South Sudan, Iraq, Cameroon, and various other conflict zones. Over the course of our conversation, Dr. Christo takes us into the trenches of caring for some of the most vulnerable people in the world, shares how he finds meaning and hope amidst the depths of human suffering, and discusses the challenges to global health today. Christos, thank you so much for taking the time to join us, and welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. We are so excited to have you with us as our first clinician not based in the United States. And whom better to speak with about international medicine than yourself? I have heard of MSF since I was a child, and growing up in Taiwan, I always had this idea of MSF as this ultimate symbol of a great love for humanity and of personal sacrifice. Before we get into what MSF does and how you got involved, can you tell us what first drew you to a medical career? Well, um, I, I always wanted to become a doctor. I always wanted to become someone who could help uh, others. And uh, if I look back at my, my family's history, uh, my father was a mathematician, my mother was a seamstress, but uh, they both came from uh, very poor uh, rustic families. And uh, to them, what mattered more than money or success was uh, to come out of this poverty by uh, helping others and also by, by gaining knowledge, by, by studying. And that's what they also taught to me. I understand now that uh, it was uh, one way for me to move out of this and medicine was a very good option. And that's how I, I studied, I tried hard and I, I joined uh, the university back in uh, the late 90s. As you look back, what were some of the most impactful life decisions and experiences that have shaped the arc of your work? It was those years in uh, the university and especially those years uh, in the amphitheaters trying to understand medicine, 
to get more familiar with medical ethics, but also to look at the, the societies outside, uh, how we can better make use of what we are studying here, how we can help uh, others, how we can help uh, the whole society to thrive. Because it's uh, more than just helping people and fixing their own problems, their health problems. So these were... Um, quite impactful moments for me, uh, the interaction I had with other uh, colleagues of mine, the medical students, students from other uh, faculties, because uh, it was a big, big university there. And we could see that we all uh, one day will come out in our society, we, we want to contribute, and we want to do it by complimenting each other. And these are memories that always help me, reminding why we're here for. Of course, uh, in the late years of my medical studies, uh, we've uh, joined practices in, in uh, hospitals. And there, even just uh, taking the blood pressure of a patient was uh, such a feeling uh, the very early days of my career. I will never forget how people always uh, look at you when uh, you're there to hold their hand and make them feel better that Yes, we we are here to help you, and 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 I think that this was always a a, a moment uh, that uh, can never fade in in uh, your life and in your memories. Christos, can I can I just back up for one second? You know, I I've realized over the years that people who train to be doctors in the United States tend to make the assumption that the path from high school, what we call high school, to becoming a doctor is the same everywhere in the world, but of course it's not. Can you just walk our listeners through how did you get from point A to point B? So you finished your high school when you're around 18, and then so what were the steps from there leading you to become a doctor? Indeed, I finished my high school uh, when I was 18, and uh, then I had to try through a system that uh, is national exams in my country. And I, I didn't pass the first year. I had to give them again uh, next year. So uh, that's how I joined the university. The university studies there are uh, six years. And in the last two years is where you also do a lot of clinical uh, practice. And, and, and then um, you have not automatically become a doctor, having graduated in the medical school. That's where everything starts. And actually, you had a mandatory course of almost two years to practice something that we call general practitioner uh, or family doctor uh, services in uh, rural areas, places, remote areas in, uh, in my country. I come from Greece, as I said. But I see that uh, this must be also uh, the system more or less in several other uh, Mediterranean countries in Europe. But to your question also about uh, memories, these are the memories that I will always carry because these were the very first years of my career as a doctor, an, an amazing experience, no matter if uh, I, I could offer them much or not because I was still you know, in my very early years. But being there, standing by them, uh, it was uh, something that I'll never forget. I know that you are trained as a surgeon, which, of course, is just one of many different forms that a medical career can take. Can you share with us what in particular drew you to surgery? Having finished with this um, mandatory course of two years uh, in remote areas, I started understanding that there are different pathways in front of me. Like uh, I could do internal medicine, I could do lab I could do psychiatry was also something that, especially in, in Greece those years, it was a kind of trend. Uh, it was a mainstream uh, for uh, doctors to, to get more familiar with the, the psychiatry. 
But I wanted to become a surgeon because I always felt like it's one of these, what we call very uh, clean uh, disciplines, uh, something that you see the impact immediately, uh, that sometimes you don't offer that much in terms of medication or advices, but you have your hands and you can really fix a problem or save their lives. And that's what fascinated me. I've I've realized over the time that the difference between me and surgeons is that surgeons look at surgery and think, oh my gosh, look at all the good that I can do immediately. I look at surgery and think, oh my gosh, look at all of the bad things that I could do immediately if I were in charge. So that's that's why you're a surgeon and I'm not. (laughs) That's true. That's that's so true. Yeah, well, so now switching gears a little bit, as Henry said at the get-go, you are helping to lead possibly the most famous international doctors organization, right? Which I think most even early medical students have probably at least heard of, Doctors Without Borders. I'm not even going to try to say the name in French because when I try to say things in French, people all over France start vomiting. So (laughs) um, I'm not even going to try that. (laughs) But... I would like it if you could just give us a little bit of an idea of two things. One is, what is the history of MSF? Where did it come from? How did it come into being? And what does it do right now? Like, what are your organization's main points of focus currently? So, my organization, Médecins Sans Frontières, and it took me also a while to, to pronounce that in, in French, started in uh, 1971 with a group of doctors and some uh, journalists. And their mandate was not just to deliver humanitarian aid to those most in need, but also become somehow the voices of the people that we were treating to bear the witness of their problems. That's why our uh, mandate is humanitarian action and also témoignage, what we call advocacy, to bearing witness uh, of people's problems. Since 1971, we grew up a lot. The last 10 years, especially, we almost doubled in size. Now we are an organization that has more than 65,000 people working in the different missions. And we are present in more than 72 countries. And I don't count uh, our presence in countries like even uh, United States or uh, France, uh, Belgium, the, the, the times of the COVID pandemic. Because in these places, we couldn't even imagine that uh, we would found ourselves in such places. But we understood that uh, there were many challenges and problems in all over the world related to the pandemic. Our um, main focus is in addressing diseases, outbreaks, epidemics, uh, treating malnourished people, responding to natural disasters or uh, man-made disasters like conflicts, like the wars. We can talk hours about uh, the different, let's say, contexts and how different is uh, each one of them, no matter if they all belong in the same category of being conflicts or being, you know, natural disasters or uh, epidemics. And we see how they all intersect, how uh, the one uh, overlaps the other and how in places where you have a protracted conflict or a situation like this, you also see the outbreak of uh, diseases or uh, you see uh, how the immunity system of the society has been affected. So these are roughly the main areas of where we work. And this is uh, what we will keep doing, which to me uh, makes absolute sense that we are there as a medical humanitarian emergency response organization trying to address needs that uh, most probably have not been addressed by others or the problem is much bigger than uh, what uh, maybe other organizations could uh, respond to. 
You know, one of the things that I think makes what you all do different from what we all do is that when I go in to practice medicine, everything I do is in an incredibly carefully controlled environment, right? The temperature is controlled, the humidity is controlled, the hygiene is controlled, there are plenty of resources for everything I need all the time, right? Like I remember when the when the pandemic was starting, it got to the point where we were getting weekly emails from the supply chain management division of Stanford just to reassure us that we were going to have enough masks and enough gowns and enough, you know, whatever of all of the things that we need. And yet when you guys are out practicing, you have none of that, right? Or or you have whatever you have. Maybe sometimes you have some protective gear or whatever, but often you don't. And even beyond that, sometimes you're literally practicing medicine in a war zone or just barely removed from a war zone, right? Sort of just behind the front lines. So can you talk a little bit about what goes on in your heart and mind to prepare yourself to practice medicine in a place that actually does pose a significant risk to your own life and limb? Yes, uh, that's uh, exactly one of the main priorities for my organization and for each one of us that we join this organization. We join a mission uh, to understand exactly how uh, unprecedented this can be, how challenging it could be in terms also of our safety and the risk that we may take in uh, many places. And next to the risk, of course, is also the challenges that we face uh, when we have to apply medicine in uh, what we call uh, very uh, limited resource uh, settings, uh, like in places where even myself as a surgeon have been uh, several times and been asked uh, to perform uh, major operations like an exploratory laparotomy in uh, an inflatable tent. And, uh, and, uh, and that was a common practice in, uh, in places like in South Sudan, in which I've been twice so far, and not just because I really enjoy practicing surgery in inflatable tents, but because uh, the, the needs are, are um, great. We need to be there with any of the, the means and the materials we have. But back to your uh, question about uh, the, the, the risk-taking, it's one of the things that although we try always uh, to make very clear to our people and gain the, uh, an informed consent by them on uh, how this is going to look like and uh, how maybe they may put even their lives in, in risk, we realize that uh, this is not enough. And the people, uh, of course, um, want to join us. They want to be in these places. And uh, we have to keep uh, updating them on this situation. That can change every time. And we have to be constantly on top of the things and be in position to really uh, evacuate the people from a context when it comes really out of control. So it's not uh, a one-shot thing that you made a deal with people that they join you and they come with you in in a mission. It is constantly... uh, a challenge it's always a problem and uh, we have to reassess security in all uh, almost all of our context uh, every day i'd like to take this conversation back to a more personal level christos can you tell us how you first got involved in msf and how you came to be its leader 
Let me start by saying how did I first uh, know MSF and uh, what made me uh, join MSF? Because I need to drive you back again to my uh, years in the medicine, in the medical school. One day, I remember I saw a poster that uh, really hypnotized me. It was a a bullet on top and uh, a tablet of a medicine uh, below it. And uh, it said, uh, their weapons kill. Hours save lives. And uh, asking for medical people and not only to, to join MSF in uh, their missions. And, and that's what I wanted to do. So I started by providing some medical uh, support to refugees and migrants coming from Middle East those days that there was a war also in, uh, in Iraq. Uh, and later, I found myself uh, in uh, treating uh, HIV AIDS patients in sub-Saharan Africa. It was at uh, the beginning of 2000. It was a big, big challenge for the whole medical society those days, all over the world, to uh, really help uh, those people. We had uh, the first, the very first line of antiretrovirals. We knew that they were effective, but at the same time, they were not that safe. And they were coming with many, many side effects. So it was a bet also for MSF to prove to everyone that no matter if people do not have watches or all the uh, facilities to comply with such treatments, as long as they they know what they are suffering from and what we are offering to them can help, they will really support themselves. And this is what happened back in uh, early 2000 with HIV. It was a game changer. People really complied with their treatment. And then it was them with their societies, with their um, post-test club groups, patient groups, that they started advocating and demonstrating for better treatments, for safer treatments, for uh, lower cost treatments. So that was uh, something that really fascinated me with this movement of MSF. And I kept uh, joining missions as a doctor, always a field doctor. Later on, I came back in uh, Europe. I continued with my studies. I became a surgeon, as I mentioned before. And then uh, my missions changed. I had to stay a shorter period of time, a few weeks, and do uh, surgery. So I found myself in places like, again, South Sudan, uh, Cameroon, in uh, Yemen, in uh, Syria, in uh, Iraq, uh, Mosul, places that we call highly insecure uh, as a context, but places that have been affected by conflicts and uh, providing emergency and trauma surgical care. That was always my relationship, let's say, with, uh, with MSF, with Doctors Without Borders. But MSF is more than just a humanitarian organization with its executive body and uh, their operations. We are also a movement. A movement of people, we have associations. When I mean associations are all these people that they may have joined different operations and then they are back. They are back in their home societies and they want still to engage, they want to be ambassadors of what we do. That's how I I, I joined also this big movement of the MSF. I became a president of the boards of directors of one of these uh, sections, MSF Greece, which was a a small one, but uh, still uh, one uh, good next step for me to gain this experience. And in 2019, I was elected uh, by the group of the whole movement of MSF as the international president. And I am now in my second term uh, because we have maximum two terms as international presidents and uh, we're not allowed to serve for this in this role more than mandates of three years. 
Thank you so much for for walking us through that. You know, the most important reason for this podcast is because this may sound sort of foreign to you, but here in the United States, there is a lot of consternation right now about what we call the epidemic of burnout among doctors. So if you look at the percentage of doctors who report that their work has no meaning, or that they at least have difficulty figuring out what the meaning is, depending on the survey that you look at, the number is usually at least in the 40% range, and sometimes as high as the 60 or 70% range, which we find to be really striking, because most people go into medicine with very high-minded ideals, right? They have this very sort of clear articulation of the moral and ethical reasons that they want to go into it. And yet, at least almost half and maybe a large majority of doctors, at least in the United States, now have difficulty remembering what the meaning is. And so I guess this may sound like a little bit of a funny question, but working in some of the least secure, most impoverished, and most difficult areas in the world, where you often don't even have all of the sterile instruments that you need, let alone all of the fancy antibiotics and respirators and pressors and other things that we take for granted in the United States. What can you help us here in the United States who practice largely much more comfortably than you do? What can you help us to remember about the meaning of medicine, about why we're here in the first place? What has your international work taught you about that? I think the way you put the question is very good and helps me to uh, remind both both to our audience but also to myself what is this that makes the difference. As you said, uh, of course, it's always important to have advanced, sophisticated ways of practicing medicine, surgery, whatever. It is it, always helpful, and I can see uh, how lucky am I to live in such an environment where all these are available, and we have all these very highly trained people to to offer the services. However, uh, at the same time, it's not this in the core of both our question and and the answer. The core should be the patients and the relations we have with the patients. When you miss that, when you lose that, when this is getting blurred or diluted, then that may make you also feel a little bit discouraged or uh, trying to to withdraw from 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 medicine uh, I, I i think in all these places that i have been what kept me vital and really boosted my morale i remember that um, so many times we were all so stressed and we didn't know even how to cope with this stress when you you, you feel insecure but you also uh, feel so so uh, sad and so shocked with what you see around and with the pain the the human suffering at the end, uh, what keeps us is this uh, relationship that we establish with the patients. We stand by them, and and they pay us back by not just uh, looking at, smiling, or uh, encouraging us to carry on, but appreciating even the very few things that uh, we are able to to give to them, and 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 that is what, to my opinion, makes the big difference. And I can go more into details later if. The time allows also, and um, I remind some uh, to myself some stories that I had that I always carry. I, I hope this could help also the others, but uh, it, it definitely helps me to keep uh, uh, doing what I do. So that that was my next question. I was hoping you know you mentioned this paradox that I think is integral to the practice of medicine, which is being in a place 
with a patient where you can't fix things, you can't cure them, right? Or in your case, you may not, you might even know something that could in theory cure them, but you don't have access to all the resources that you need. And there's this suffering that you can't entirely fix. And yet you're able to find meaning in the midst of that inability to do everything that you would like to do. Could, could you tell us a specific story about a time when you faced that, a time that you faced great suffering, that it was very difficult, you couldn't do everything that you wanted in terms of fixing the problem, and yet you still found meaning nonetheless? I have in my mind two stories. The one uh, was last year uh, when I went back to South Sudan and I joined uh, one of our missions in uh, a camp, a huge camp of uh, hundreds of thousands of people there. We call them uh, protection of civilian camps. And uh, MSF was there with a kind of secondary uh, hospital unit. Those days, it was also very, very unsafe, very insecure. Uh, every night, I had to operate on uh, uh, gunshot uh, wounded patients. And I remember that uh, they called me one night. Uh, I attended the uh, ER department that we had set up. And everything you can imagine looked like tents and uh, uh, a very basic settlement there. But, 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 but still, I saw a patient uh, that uh, had a, a complete exvisceration uh, because of a huge uh, trauma wound in, uh, in his abdomen. And I knew that we have only one blood unit, no intensive care unit, one anesthetist who could do that with uh, ketamine. There was no uh, uh, option for intubation there. And uh, I felt like, okay, why are we losing our time now? <laughs> and, and, and when I was thinking that, uh, I looked at his eyes and uh, he was looking at me. He was still, you know, alive and uh, he, he couldn't even talk. He was holding all his intestines here and then he had two of his uh, friends helping him. And it was like, okay, let's, let's do it. Let's do it together and, and we'll see, whatever. So but we went to theater. We had a theater. We have a theater which, as I said before, had the basics. I had a diatomy. I had my sutures. I had all the basic things uh, to, to start uh, fixing uh, a few of the holes in the uh, bowel. And uh, then I realized that uh, there was no major trauma, vascular trauma. We ended up after a few hours with um, closing the abdomen. And we didn't have an ICU, but uh, we all stayed there with shifts to support him uh, for a couple of hours. And next day, he was doing a bit better. And to cut it short, after a few days, uh, he was about to be discharged. And it was also the days that I was handing over to uh, another of my colleagues. I could never believe that we could uh, save uh, this patient. So sometimes it's them that they help you to help them. And that's where we get all this from. And um, what we should never lose, it's hope. And now this brings me to my second story, which goes back to my very first years with MSF, when I said before that I was in sub-Saharan Africa trying to treat HIV patients. And we said how important it was uh, for them to comply with the treatment. The antiretrovirals, you miss some doses, you may cause more harm than good to these patients and you may develop resistance. So uh, one of them uh, one day came to the clinic and the nurse asked me to go and see him because he stopped, he refused to continue his treatment. So I went there to find out what's going on. 
And he said to me, I stopped because I heard that you are about to leave. I said, yes, I'm leaving soon after 10 months, but uh, you need to carry on. It helped you so much. And you see that it's very effective. So uh, you know that um, this is how it goes. Someone else will come and replace me. Where also I want to see my family. We are all humans. And he said, no, 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 doctor. You are not a human. You are my hope. You are my prayer. And, and uh, that means a lot, both to us these days that we recall the, such stories, about uh, keeping their hope alive. Because treating humans with uh, dignity and uh, this right to stand by them and to help in their pain, uh, maybe at the end of the day what we do more than anything else is keeping their hope alive. Those are really powerful stories. Some people might hear that and think, yes, I'm sold. Those stories are why I chose medicine. Sign me up. At the same time, I'm sure that many people, after reflecting on what MSF actually does, will be unable to get past the thought of putting oneself at the most acute form of personal risk. Say, you are operating in a tent somewhere, and there are bullets flying just outside, and people are dying around you. Perhaps your colleagues have already been subjected to the violence endemic in the area. Many might look at that and think, yes, I love medicine, but how can I do good medical work when my safety is constantly being threatened? In my case, early on in medical school, I remember once bringing up my interest in MSF with my parents, who very quickly begged me to drop the idea. Not that they didn't respect or value what MSF does, but rather, they simply could not bear to imagine me working in such dangerous situations. I'm sure that even for those in MSF who are already working on the ground, these concerns are somewhere in the back of their minds. Is this something you have wrestled with? And if so, how did you deal with that? Henry, all, all these worries are very legitimate. And uh, uh, maybe we have created some kind of myths around uh, working MSF. And uh, I really wouldn't like to come out from this podcast with this impression that we are the, the heroes, that we really uh, <laughs> care about our own lives. We just care about others. Uh, patient safety is uh, always uh, a priority, but uh, also the carer's safety comes first. Uh, in many places, uh, still today, we cannot uh, access uh, because uh, of security reasons. And uh, we would like to do more. We would like to be closer to more populations that they are excluded. But as long as they are in the middle of a conflict and there are no what we call humanitarian space or humanitarian corridors for us, we try not to go. Having said that, though, we have, uh, during all these 50 years uh, since the inception of MSF, we have lost plenty of our people. They had either been abducted or killed in, uh, in conflicts. And uh, that's why we try these days even harder, not just to understand and analyze this context, but make sure that uh, we ensure enough safety for, for our missions to operate. But um, even if it is safe enough, as uh, very recently I was in uh, Ukraine uh, uh, and the places where we developed our activities uh, were not in the very, very front uh, line, uh, still uh, you see uh, the selling, you can hear the bombs, you can uh, look uh, next to you and see that uh, something has been uh, bombed now. 
and there, of course, I understand that all uh, my colleagues and everyone who is in this humanitarian world may have experienced stress that it's not easy even to describe to others. We do have services like psychological support, but uh, again, I'll come back to what helped me more than anything else is uh, to share this uh, with my people, but also to share this with my patients. In some cases, I hear them saying that uh, as you protected me and saved me, now it's my turn and my community will do their best to protect you guys that you came here uh, to assist us. And uh, sometimes it's them that they become our shield. And not a shield that can protect you from the bombs, but those shields that can protect you from, you know, uh, narratives against uh, the humanitarianism uh, or uh, uh, the hostility of uh, different non-state armed groups or even state armed groups uh, when there is a conflict. It is, again, the community, it is the patients and their people that matter a lot. I, I just I just want to go on the record saying that for all of the things that you've said that have inspired me, the one thing I definitely disagree with you is about whether you guys are heroes or not. I think they are the heroes. It's uh, like uh, you're going to go now to your hospital again and uh, you see how they, they struggle there um, to alleviate their suffering. And uh, we are there to, to help. But uh, the big battle has always been given by, by them. I have to imagine, so you mentioned early on that your hope in every case, of course, is to bring healing. It's to fix the problem, cure the disease when possible. But even when you're not doing that, you used the word witness. You said that you are, you all are there to witness the suffering of your, of your patients and then to bear witness to that suffering in, you know, the media or, or in front of governments or whatever when necessary. We have heard some other doctors in very different contexts share similar sentiments, but I have come to recognize in my life, which is much, much, much more comfortable and much easier than yours, especially in terms of the way that I practice medicine, but even in comfortable confines, the weight of bearing witness is significant. It's a lot, right, to to, to be a witness to human suffering. And so I guess I wonder... How do you personally equip yourself to be able to do that and not have the weight grow so heavy that it becomes unmanageable, that it becomes toxic or dangerous to you? What buoys you up in the dark hours of the night or the times when hope threatens to flee? Oh, that's a great question. Because indeed, um, I now recall all the challenges that we have been facing all these last years to bear the witness and uh, talk about what we see, to become the voices of those that we are there for. And there are several challenges, but um, I think uh, simplicity could be part of the answer to this question. And simplicity comes with uh, telling it as it is. So what we see what we bear as a witness, what we hear from their own uh, uh, mouths is what we tell and uh, what we share with the others. And also this, maybe not enough, but uh, when this comes with our independence, our impartiality, our spirit of neutrality, those main driving principles that we have, it can um, make a good combination and it can come with a very let's say, true story that people will listen to. 
a story that uh, does not want to become part of a noise that uh, exists already, and a story that comes uh, straight from, from the mouth of the people. But uh, I don't think we always have this uh, uh, right recipe. Maybe we still struggle to find the most appropriate ways to do that. Maybe sometimes uh, by using the stories of these people, and especially when this is accompanied also with an image of them, no matter if you have gained their consent or not, maybe this is not enough. And maybe ethically, it's not the right thing. Would you do the same back in your own country with your own patients or not? These are the things that keep me awake some nights. And uh, I understand that uh, many times it is them. It is the people like the one that I mentioned before, before he was about to to be discharged. He asked me, how can you make sure that others know what we are suffering from here? And at the same time, he asked me also, how can I uh, thank all those that they are behind us and, and they support us to support these people? But the question about becoming his voice was also addressed by him. And, uh, and I didn't have the, the right answer. I didn't want to just say that and then understand that it was just a... I was a part of, of a noise that exists already. But I, I didn't want to also to break the medical ethics and uh, use inappropriate ways uh, to shock the people with his story. I had to find a good balance, and uh, that's not always easy. I think what you've said about bearing witness to suffering really resonates with one of the core missions of our show, which is to share the power of storytelling to help us slow down and develop a mindfulness for the moments of beauty and tenderness amid the noise of our daily busyness. And I don't mean just in a medical context either, although as clinicians, we do have a unique privilege of being with people at some of their most human moments. I'd like to change gears and talk about global health at large. Although we arguably live in the most peaceful and prosperous era of human history, with advancements in technology and medicine and standards of living, it is undeniable that there are still massive issues occurring all around us. Political and military strife stands in the way of your work and the work of other humanitarian NGOs. Can you share with us what, to you, are some of the most pressing challenges to global health now? Well, (laughs) such a huge question. Uh, So bear with me, because I will start drawing a picture for you, which I will somehow talk a lot about the challenges. Also with the caveat that this comes from uh, my humanitarian background, maybe my my understanding of other global health priorities is not uh, the optimal. However, I would start with a bigger, bigger threat, which is the climate change. We see and we will continue to see the, the health impacts of climate change in, in our uh, programs, in our activities, and in all places where we work in several ways. Actually, we see mass displacement, we see malnutrition, we see lack of access to uh, safe water and sanitation. And we see uh, in a nutshell that uh, those that they are less responsible for this climate degradation are also those that they are mostly affected. 
And next to this, we see epidemics and outbreaks. And I think that uh, we will continue to face challenges from epidemics, outbreaks, and the lack of access to medicines and tools to respond to those uh, outbreaks. Indicatively, I mentioned before, uh, infectious diseases such as uh, HIV and uh, tuberculosis. We still have uh, multidrug-resistant tuberculosis, and there's not much uh, moving forward with the research and development of, uh, of new drugs by the global uh, health community. It was MSF that very recently uh, produced a new molecule for uh, multidrug-resistant tuberculosis. And uh, after 100 years, I think uh, that was... Uh, <laughs> we should uh, uh, go for more. We should think bigger than uh, what we can deliver as uh, MSF. Affordable access to medicines and uh, medical products. Again, uh, the COVID-19 pandemic should have been a wake-up call to all our global leaders and uh, the leaders of industry. It could be an opportunity to show that global problems can have global solutions. But unfortunately, instead of that, we had more or less the same business model, uh, which prioritized the people in uh, mostly wealthy countries and ignored also very serious uh, health risks we had in uh, other places in in the world. So I I hope that next time and while uh, these days uh, everyone is getting prepared for the next pandemic and uh, how to respond, let us not forget that this is uh, still ongoing and let us try to really literally learn from our uh, mistakes. Conflicts, unfortunately, even during the pandemic, the pandemic itself did not evaporate all other conflicts that were happening in the world. So it's a lot about working in all these extremely complex uh, conflict zones like uh, Ukraine these days, uh, Yemen, uh, Democratic Republic of Congo, uh, Nigeria, Syria, Cameroon. These are places that I'm afraid that the situation is not going to be resolved uh, soon. Uh, From the other side, I see more and more new uh, conflicts uh, popping up. We see more people on the move people migrating, people that they look for safety. It's not as uh, it used to be maybe 30 or 40 years ago. Uh, This time, people uh, really take so high risks, putting in the risk both themselves and their families and their little kids because they look for safety. And I I know, I know where they come from. I've been there. Even our hospitals have been bombed into such places. So I understand what does it mean for them to seek uh, a safer place and flee from these uh, wars. So these are roughly some of the main challenges that we have. In these challenges, if you look at uh, organizations like mine or all those that uh, they are humanitarians, uh, unfortunately, we see that our humanitarian space is uh, shrinking more and more. And we, we struggle to gain access to all this population. And it's getting even more difficult than maybe before to have access or uh, to let this population reach us. So for me, uh, within this very hostile uh, humanitarian environment, accessing the people that uh, they need you more or uh, letting them reach you is the number one uh, challenge that we face. As we near the end of our time together, I would like to ask you, What advice do you have for clinicians? And I refer to medical students, young career clinicians, nurses, and other health professionals. What advice do you have for those who are already interested in global health uh, about tackling the challenges you've laid out for us? And what might you say to encourage more people 
to think about how they might play a part in addressing these issues? First of all, they have all made a great choice in their life to become doctors, to practice medicine, to help other people. And this is, this is amazing. It will have uh, several uh, tough moments, several challenges, but also great, great moments. It will pay them back. I, I can tell that with uh, all my experience all these years. Second, dealing with uh, global health issues doesn't necessarily mean that you need to be present in all those places that uh, we described before. You can still do your part and play your role, even from your little cabinet, wherever you are sitting in an outpatient department in your hospital. As long as you are connected and you understand that the whole world is connected. So what you do with your patient, whenever and whatever and wherever is it, it matters a lot because you are a part of a global network of people that they try to assist others. And uh, this is, to me, the global health. And, uh, of course, uh, gaining experiences of uh, how the world uh, looks like from completely different contexts. Please, you're more than welcome to join organizations like mine, like uh, Doctors Without Borders. But this uh, will not uh, make you a hero. And uh, this uh, will not mean that uh, you will uh, save the world. What it means is that uh, you will offer a lot and your, your little thing in, a, in a something big that we all try to build up together. And this is my, my main advice to everybody. And when uh, we find ourselves to sometimes that we may not offer enough to the, those uh, that we are there for, when we find ourselves to those situations where um, you don't have all the means, you don't have all the medication, what still matters a lot is to keep uh, standing by the people that they need you, to keep standing by the patients and holding their hands. And uh, believe me, this is a lot. This is enough. Well, with those encouraging, inspiring words, uh, I want to thank you, Christos, for your time and for sharing all of your incredible stories and insights. Henry, thank you so much. From my side, I really enjoyed this. Thank you for joining our conversation on this week's episode of The Doctor's Art. You can find program notes and transcripts of all episodes at thedoctorsart.com. If you enjoyed the episode, please subscribe, rate, and review our show available for free on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We also encourage you to share the podcast with any friends or colleagues who you think might enjoy the program. And if you know of a doctor, patient, or anyone working in healthcare who would love to explore meaning in medicine with us on the show, feel free to leave a suggestion in the comments. I'm Henry Bear. And I'm Tyler Johnson. We hope you can join us next time. Until then, be well.